Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, I'm your host, Nick Bridges. Robin and Keeley are both away this week. Keeley's out in northern Ontario doing field work, and Robin is on maternity leave with her first child, Kate. Congratulations, Robin. Filling in today is Know History's very own Sarah Wilmhurst. Welcome, Sarah. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, thank you, Nick. I work at No History as a research associate. My undergrad thesis and master's thesis both focus on a charity called Health Lake of Canada, and that's how I kind of got interested in the history of charities and philanthropy. After my master's degree, I went to Humber College to take fundraising management, and I worked in fundraising for a while before coming back to the history arena. And I'm very happy to be here today and share some of my excitement about charities. Fantastic. We're all looking forward to it. On May 5th, No History is participating in the annual CN Cycle for CHEO, which raises money for the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. While CHEO is our charity of choice, countless other nonprofits take advantage of the spring and summer months to hold their fundraising walks, runs, cycles, relays, and more. To mark the fundraising season, today we'll be diving into the history of charitable work in Canada. If you have a mailbox, email address, or telephone, ride transit, look at billboards, or generally go out in public, you've probably heard from or about a charity. If you've gone to a college or university, a house of worship, checked out a museum exhibit, play or symphony, or even visited a hospital, you have almost certainly benefited from a charity's work. Charities are ubiquitous in Canada and perform a truly staggering range of activities. The variety can be overwhelming, but pretty much everyone has a cause close to their heart. That's why Canadians make over $10 billion in philanthropic gifts each year. These donations range from multi-million dollar pledges, where they start naming buildings after you, to change dropped into a collection tank. So virtually every Canadian participates in philanthropy to some extent, but how did we get here? Who decides what counts as a charitable purpose? Why can we write off donations on our taxes? Stay tuned to learn the answers to those questions and much more as we notice the history of charity. Most, if not all, religions include a directive to be philanthropic. Islamic zakat christian tithing and more the term philanthropy is derived from the greek phrase for love of mankind chinese state philanthropy is documented as early as the 10th century rulers in the Song dynasty fed housed and buried the poor meanwhile in the middle east the growth of the ottoman empire spread muslim ideals of charity and the Keith foundations funded educational religious and cultural programs all across the empire in early modern europe charity as we recognize it became necessary when feudalism declined Lords were no longer responsible for serfs, and as people moved into urban centers, a disadvantaged class grew. Thinkers began to argue that the state should accept responsibility for relief. In 1601, the British Parliament adopted the Statute of Charitable Uses. 16th century England needed an outpouring of charity to see the nation through an economic crisis. The 1601 Act was intended to encourage citizens to assist one another and to keep the government from becoming solely responsible for relief. Per legal scholar James Fishman, this act was really meant to encourage the affluent to give to projects that the government approved of um, and provide some mechanisms for oversight so charitable assets were being administered appropriately and 
affluent people would feel more confident giving to charitable projects. The preamble to the Charitable Uses Act was not actually intended to define charity or exclude any particular activities from the definition of charity, but it really has been used in that way over time. The preamble of the Charitable Uses Act of 1601 provides many examples of what constitutes a charitable purpose. Some of those are things like relief of the aged and the poor, maintenance of sick and maimed soldiers and mariners, schools of learning, free schools and scholars and universities, the repair of bridges, ports, havens, causeways, churches, sea banks, and highways, the care of orphans, maintenance of houses of correction, support and aid to young tradesmen, and the relief and redemption of prisoners and captives, uh, including many other things. One of the examples is actually the marriages of poor maids. That's really interesting. It's a, so it's a pretty all-encompassing piece of legislation then. It's really trying to, I guess, change how society worked. Yeah, in some ways. I think it, it did really, it was sort of intended to cast a wide net of all of the things, you know, a person can possibly be philanthropic towards. So the definition of charitable purposes in English law has evolved over time, but it's remained broadly defined as poor relief or the advancement of education and religion and other advancement of the public good. One thing that, you know, you'll notice if you engage in philanthropy or fundraising of any kind is that there are a lot of different types of philanthropy. And I'd like to just briefly go through some of the early examples of those many types of giving and charity. So in 1720, Jonathan Swift began the first microloan program, the Irish Loan Fund, to assist thousands of poor Irish tradespeople and their families. Additionally, the Irish potato famine can be seen as one of the first examples of disaster philanthropy. People from Irish diaspora communities, Asia, Australia, Africa, the Americas, and around Europe sent funds to assist the starving Irish. Even the Choctaw, who had just endured relocation on the Trail of Tears, gathered funds for Irish relief. The World Wars would provide similarly global outpourings of generosity to support widows, orphans, displaced people, and the wounded. Then Canada's first philanthropic foundation, the Massey Foundation, was founded in 1918 in honor of Hart Massey. The foundation supported Toronto institutions that exist to this day, like Hart House Theatre and Massey Hall. In 1953, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that companies can make donations whether or not the charity will directly benefit their business. And that was sort of the beginning of corporate philanthropy as we know it today. General Electric also introduced the first corporate gift matching program in 1954. That meant that employees of General Electric could make a donation to a post-secondary school and then GE would match their gift. Pulling this discussion over to Canada, early colonists in Atlantic Canada adopted the Charitable Uses Act of 1601 we discussed earlier as a guide for towns and villages on how to fund and supervise poor relief. Lower Canada followed the French model where individuals in the Crown contributed to the church, and then the church provided relief, education, and health care. This lasted even after the British assumed control of Lower Canada in 1763, since the liberal middle and upper-class English Canadians preferred to keep the government out of it. This system did not substantially change until the Quiet Revolution of the 1960s. In Upper Canada, the government accepted little responsibility for poor relief, leaving it to private citizens and voluntary groups. Upper Canadian relief and mutual aid societies were usually organized by religious, ethnic, and linguistic communities to care for their own members. The Canadian government began to concern itself with charity in a substantial way during World War I. 
the government figured that Canadians would be more likely to join the military if they knew that their families would have support on the home front. And so the government didn't have to provide direct assistance. They allowed unlimited tax deductions on donations to organizations like the Red Cross and the Canadian Patriotic Fund. Families of service members did get relief, but many reported that the organizations providing that relief were often quite condescending and insulting. Is there a reason that the organizations were seen as condescending and insulting? In many cases, people, even though they were you know, entitled to this assistance because they did have you know, a head of household or family member in the services, they still were treated as charity cases. They were treated like they were on the dole. Gotcha, gotcha. So the social stigma of being part of a lower order, maybe. Yes, definitely. The first federal corporate and personal income tax was passed in Canada in 1917, in large part to fund the war effort. And that's when this, you know, this tax deduction on charitable donations was included. The tax deduction was actually repealed in 1920. Rod Watson, writing in The Philanthropist, pointed out that, you know, we can see that when this crisis of the war ended, the government quickly clawed back tax incentives that had encouraged donations. Since, really, the government no longer saw any need to encourage enlistment, relief was no longer a priority, even though the need was very apparent. There were still many people living in poverty and in need of assistance. Right, of course, especially when you have so many people coming back from the war with injuries or not being able to work. Exactly. But the Canadian government really sat out of charitable issues until the Depression began in 1929, and provincial and local governments began to ask the federal government to contribute to relief for the poor and unemployed. In 1930, the federal government amended the Income Tax Act and allowed citizens again to deduct charitable gifts up to 10% of their net income. At first, this only applied to specific charity, like hospitals, universities, and churches, which left out a lot of other charitable organizations. After a litany of complaints, the government edited this amendment to cover virtually all charitable organizations, namely charitable organizations as defined in British common law, as we discussed earlier. The 10% income ceiling was actually inspired by the Christian practice of tithing. It's interesting how religious culture is all through charitable organizations, whether, you know, encouraging people to be philanthropic or affecting even the percentage amount that the government thinks is worthwhile. Exactly. I think, you know, it's a, it was a system that had been around so long, people just took it for granted at that point. And so it seemed obvious that, you know, 10% was a, um, was a figure that made sense. <laughs> of course, right. During World War II, home front and overseas war relief charities like the Red Cross, the Imperial Order of Daughters of the Empire, and the Legion got special consideration again, and citizens could deduct up to 50% of their income in donations to those charities. Then, starting in 1948, charities who wanted to offer tax receipts had to apply to the federal government for charitable status. Hmm. It's interesting how the government's regulating the entire process, but in the examples that we've seen sort of leading up to the Second World War, it all has to do with um, the utilitarian purpose of winning a war or not having everyone in total poverty. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it seems like as Canadian culture changed over the wars and the interwar period, you see a growth in civil society and you also see the government becoming more invested in civil society. And either wanting to encourage it or on a, perhaps on a more um, cynical view, wanting to manage it. Right, right. So Nick, you might be wondering, 
<laughs> After the war, what happened? In the post-war period in Canada, the welfare state really grew. We started to have um, things like hospital insurance. And then later on, there was full medical care insurance. And you could think that that would leave less of a space for charities in Canadian society. But in fact, one really excellent Canadian historian, Shirley Tillotson, has argued in a very compelling way that the creation of the welfare state did not actually cause citizens to give less to charity. And in fact, the modernization of fundraising really helped prepare people for the welfare state. One of the trends that Tillotson identified is that as fundraising modernized, it actually departed from individual donors having to do this work of choosing and feeling and deciding which charities deserve their attention. We saw a more efficient and sometimes impersonal basis for giving, and especially that comes up in the federated fundraising movement, which we'll get into in more detail in a moment. A big part of that process was community chests and federated fundraising organizations really saying to citizens, you as a citizen with a certain income and a certain amount of assets owe a certain amount to charity in a given year. And that really helped prepare people for the mindset that allowed for taxation and the welfare state. So people aren't totally left in the dark. What what is a community chest or federated fundraising? The federated fundraising movement started in 1914 in Cleveland, actually. There was a lawyer named Frederick Goff. He created the first community chest foundation. That was a centralized organization for the city that allowed any resident to donate to a pool of funds that went to support community projects. The community chest and federated fundraising movement was really intended to save money and effort by holding one well-run campaign to do all of the city's fundraising at once. It was meant to reduce the irksomeness of charitable giving by cutting down on street canvassing and appeals to businesses and householders. And to maintain this method, members of the community chest had to reveal their finances to the central organization. They couldn't keep any excess money at the end of the year, and they couldn't canvass for funds in that city outside of their participation in the overall community chest fundraising effort. Right. So it's, it's, it's almost a totalitarian super charity. Is that a fair <laughs> characterization? You could say that. It was definitely, it was intended to completely reshape charitable giving. Right. You know, the idea was in many cities, I think it was November, I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, there was going to be like a blitz in November where everybody got charitable appeals and everybody made their donations for the year and it would all get thrown into one pot and then the community chest would disperse that money to the various charities in the city. And in this future that the community chest envisioned, you would never be asked on a street corner to make a donation. A cadet would never offer to sell you an apple. You would never buy a girl guide cookie again. You would never receive a mail appeal outside of this one big campaign. So it would be a much more impersonal system then. Yes. And many people really didn't like the federated fundraising movement because of that. You know, they said that the whole point of being philanthropic is to consider a cause, think about what you can do for your fellow humans and make a donation accordingly. Many people really felt that the federated fundraising movement was just a private form of taxation that divorced individuals from their charitable giving choices and from their community and their care for their fellow citizens. 
Right. And I, what I think is really fascinating about it is that they were trying to rework a system that at that point was 300 years old. If you can take it back to the act from 1601. Definitely. So it's interesting because we see that the purposes of charity have not changed a lot, but the method of funding charities has changed radically and people have really different ideas of how that can work. I think in some ways you see the federated fundraising movement as almost tailorizing charity. It's like the assembly line of charity. And so it's very, very much in keeping with the 20th century ethos of you know, make everything as efficient as possible. And actually, um, in a related note, we can speak to the kind of updated version of federated fundraising. So we started off with the community chest, and that actually transitioned over time, where more and more community chests turned into what were called united funds. So United Funds began in Michigan's post-World War II industrial plants. So very much, you know, Taylorism for charity. Of course. <laughs> United Funds are a bit different because they explicitly welcomed national organizations. Community chests, which were organized on a municipal level, had really rejected national organizational membership before. But in the interim, national organizations and especially national health organizations had become very large and very successful, sort of parallel to the community chest movement. Since the national health organizations were conducting their own very successful fundraising campaigns, community chests really had not succeeded in cutting off multiple appeals because there still were multiple appeals happening. The community chest just wasn't benefiting from them. The United Fund movement welcomed these organizations and also was really focused on integrating charity with business. Business leaders really liked the United Fund method because they wanted to pare down the number of appeals that their companies had to respond to. They really made it worth the member agencies while by providing access to their employees in the workplace. So organizations could start visiting workplaces to Canvas, speak to labor representatives and unions, and start collecting donations through payroll deduction. So Henry Ford II was actually one of the first leaders of a United Fund campaign, which was held in 1949. You know, you might be wondering, where did all of this go? The United Fund, over time, sort of transition became a few different things. And the closest thing we have to the sort of resulting organization now is the United Way in Canada called United Way Centred. Well, the goals have shifted, but the federated fundraising movement didn't succeed in getting rid of fundraising appeals as really anyone can see today. And even as anyone who's been in contact with the No History Associate recently has noticed about our CN cycle for CHEO appeals, jumping into Canada more specifically. Let's look at what the third sector looks like today. Between 1936 and 1980, the number of charities in Canada expanded from 909 to 39,865. Today, there are over 85,000 registered charities in Canada, about 76,000 of which are in active operation and another 80,000-plus nonprofits that are not registered charities. Registered charities account for about 13.3% of Canada's gross domestic product, more than real estate, finance, and insurance, or mining. And charities employ about 1 in 11 Canadians. That's huge, especially when people think of Canada as this resource extraction economy. It's amazing to see how many people charities are actually employing in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's pretty wild. In 2015, the Canadian charitable sector had revenue of $251 billion, including $168.5 billion in government funding. Since 66% of funding is from the government, it can seem unsuitable to call it voluntary or the non-governmental sector. 
And that's why other terms like third sector, social profit sector, and civil society sector are coming into more common use. One of the other great things about those terms is that it really defines the sector in terms of what it does instead of what it doesn't do. You know, the nonprofit sector can be a little bit disheartening because it's all about what we don't do, which is create profit. But things like social profit and civil society really highlight what the third sector and what charities bring to the table. They still improve society, even though they don't necessarily make millions and millions of dollars. They make millions of dollars, but they also then they put it back into the community as reinvestment right. instead of a small group of people getting to keep it. Next time you're out sorting your mail and ripping open the charity appeals to see if there's a notepad or a set of mailing labels inside, think about what it took to get this letter to you. As we've learned, it required a human inclination to help one another, a near universal religious directive, a political and economic crisis in Elizabethan England, and a world war. Among many other things, consider what it would look like if the federated fundraising movement had succeeded in consolidating every fundraising campaign in your city. Do you think that it would be better, or would you miss hearing from your favorite organizations throughout the year? Think about the charities you've given to or volunteered with, and consider the impact that you have had. It's easy to take charities for granted, but we hope that after listening to this episode, you take notice of philanthropy and remember its history. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Robin Mullins and Emily Cuggy. This week's episode was researched and edited by our guest host, Sarah Wilmhurst. For more information on today's topic, visit us at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.